and welcome to IRC Book Club, the show where every week, or pretty much every week, Michael and I take a famous business or sales book, we reconstruct it, deconstruct it, talk about it, and put it all back together again. Although this week's a slightly different show. This is like a Christmas special, isn't it? Except it's January. Well, it's February. February, yeah. It's a different show because we got through getting things done, somewhat ironically, very quickly, which has given us a couple of weeks before we get on to our next author. So what Mike and I said we'd do, and I think could be an interesting section of the show, and it might be that other people may want to come on the show as guests to create some sub-shows of the same nature, is five books that shaped my career. So this week it's my turn, and I guess, Mike, you're going to interview me about the five books that shaped my career. Well, that's news to me, but I'm good with that. Right, let's do it. So let's start with number five. So I've picked five books. So which is the bottom one? Uh, they're in no particular order, but we'll put them in order at the end of the show, shall we? I, I, uh, okay, okay. I, th- I think there should be, like if you're watching this thing, The Masked Singer, there should be a winner, you know, out of the book, shouldn't there? All right, well, we'll pick a winner at the end at the end of the show. How about you pick the five books, I'll pick your winner, and then I'll do my five books and you pick my winner. When I've done yours yeah, next Yeah, exactly. Week. Okay, so this week I'm going to talk about the, the five books that have really made a difference. I mean, what am I, 48 in December I've just turned... And I'm not a millionaire, but do you know what? I've earned an all right living. Put a child through private school, you know, drive a nice motor, live in a nice house. My sales career hasn't been too bad to me, really. Um, and I've learned a lot. And there are, I would say, some, some of that success is down to some of the learning and things I've learned. And some of that, I would say 99% of that has been self-directed learning. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to start the start, and I, I'm using my phone here for notes. The first one, I think, for me, is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Oh, Johnny, what a classic. I know. I know. So let's, you give the synopsis, because it's your book. Well, the synopsis is... I'll start with why I picked it. Is It's the first book that got me organised. Yes, brilliant. It's a brilliant book. Just organised. Okay. So and, it, and, it, it? and it got it's written by Stephen R. Covey, and if you know Michael, you've known me a long time. When, when we first started out in our recruitment careers, I used to keep a Covey planner religiously. Yes. What's always surprised me about the Seven Habits is nobody's ever softwareized that. They tried to create a digital version of the Covey planning system. Whatever happened? Because I thought that would be and a brilliant they just idea. executed it appallingly. Okay, so let's. And do- I tried. Obviously, I tried it. Yeah, clearly. For about a day. Um, And, you know, what's the basis of the book? The basis of the book is there are seven key habits that make people effective. You know, be proactive, begin with the end in mind, put first things first, think win-win, seek first to understand. And if I look at the key different What's the most important bit in that book? Sharpen the saw. I see, I wouldn't have said that, actually. For me, the biggest takeaways, there's a couple of things. One was, in that particular book, I I learned a lot about organising my time around my values. Okay. And thinking about, and interestingly, David Allen doesn't really espouse values-driven time management. In fact, he he completely negates that. He's anti it. So let's talk about how Stephen Covey suggests you do that. And I'm referring to the quadrant, clearly. So what they're talking about is, when you're doing your weekly review and you're sitting down, Michael and I were talking about this earlier, on a Sunday morning, I get up at eight and I plan. I think about my week, I do a review of my week and I look at what I'm going to do. And it's almost an instinctive subconscious process now is to think about my big rocks. 
Okay. That I've got to put in the diary, the big projects. You know, I've got that project that's landed on Friday night from America. That is a big rock for me that needs to be fitted into my weekly. So let's talk about the quadrant. What, A, B, C, D? Yes. What do you want to talk about? In what context? I think there are two key parts of that book, and that is the main book. I think you need to explain to the listeners how the ABCD thing works. Yes. Because I think that's crucially important. Yes, you've got this four-way quadrant. Quadrant A is what they call the quadrant of stress and urgency, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of people, and over the years, Mike, you and I have coached and developed a lot of young consultants where most people's natural working predilection is to live life in quadrant A. It is. Well, there's, there's two axes, isn't there? One is urgency and one is importance. Yes. And quadrant A is top right and it's everything is urgent and important. Yes. Whereas quadrant B... Everything is, is important. But not urgent. Correct. And the whole point, in many respects, one of the deepest premises of the book is that you spend your life in quadrant B, not quadrant A, so that you don't end up in quadrant A. Correct, yeah. So uh, the idea the being... C that you can just can. Yes. So the idea being is that... If you are doing two hours of new business every day, because it's a quadrant B activity, it's important, yes. you don't end up in that quadrant A place of, oh my God, I've got to close something or I'm going to lose my job. Well, there's loads Prime of stuff that, ends up that goes from quadrant B to quadrant A. Tax returns. Tax return. Car insurance. Flossing your teeth. All of that stuff. Are quad- if you they are, don't yeah. do it when it's important but not urgent, at some point... It will be important and urgent, and then you will make a mess of well, what it. What have I just cost you more money or whatever. What have I just done? No just, idea. I've just come back in from where? The gym. Why? Because the gym is a quadrant B activity. Because if you're not in good nick, at some point it's going to become an urgent priority, isn't it? Because you're going to need to go to hospital. Correct. You're going to kill so over So that's the first attack. part. I do agree with your second part of it, though, which is talking about sharpening the saw. Yes. So that, if you said to me what's... You're right, there's a lot more takeaways for me than that, you know, particularly ABC. And if you looked at sometimes, look at my, my day book. If you look today. at Mike's day book today, he has ABC. And then B a number tasks. my A's. Yeah, and he numbers his A's. And to be fair, if you looked in a lot of the different Asana projects I'm using, if you looked in it, a lot of my tasks are still ABC. See, that's why I don't like Asana actually. But you can categorise everything A, B, C, A, B, C. So you can just move it around. It's just about configuring the system to meet your needs. Fair enough. What's your second book? So that was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The bit that we didn't really talk about there is sharpening the saw. Well, I think that's self-explaining, you know, ex- isn't it? Um, no. I think that the number one, one of the core lessons I see... In our industry, Mike, is people don't sharpen their saw. Well, the industry is flattering people at the minute. Yeah. Currently, the industry, the software industry, is flattering people and sales people having better careers than their skill set. And when the bite happens, which inevitably at some point it will... The ones who have sharpened their saws will survive and the ones who haven't correct. will be utterly screwed. Correct. They with, will get with found massive out. massive mortgages, massive... Massive houses, massive cars, massive school fees. They'll just get found do, out. Do you know why? Because actually... They're waiting for the quadrant A to hit them, whereas the good guys who are sharpening their saw, they'll be putting their money away like a good quadrant B would do. Yeah. And they can just weather that storm more effectively, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So that was my first book, really, and it, it did have an enormous effect, I would say. I read it very early in my recruitment career. Nobody made me ready read it. Nobody recommended it to me. I just picked it up and read it of my own volition, and it made it, it, you know... If I think about it, I'm still working 
with a lot of those principles right now. So next up, Pricey, is Awaken the Giant Within by Anthony Robbins. That would be my number one, actually. Well, we we can't rank them yet. No, I mean, personally, I don't know what you're going to put in your ranking. Uh, So how did I come by this? Well, when I read it, I was in an extremely dark place. So what is it? Let's tell us what it is. So Awaken the Giant Within is... I don't know if you've ever heard of Tony Robbins. It's Tony Robbins' manual for life, really, isn't it? Yeah. It's a manual for living, goal setting. I think it it is the number one self-help, self-correction, self-realisation book. Yes. And the background behind Tony Robbins is it's born of... He was a disciple and a massive admirer of Richard Bandler. He then basically copied neurolinguistic programming and rebranded it under his own IP. Well, it's Muck NLP, isn't it? Yes, it's Muck NLP, and he rebranded it under his own NLP. The beauty of it at the time when I came to it was whew, 2002, I would say. I was working at Howard Jackson. I hated it. I had rashes all over my body from stress. Wow. Yeah, I was in an absolute mess. I hated it. It was an... Inc- well, you were there. I worked there then. It was a toxic, toxic place to work, wasn't it? And I don't know. I was really young and I was always drunk, so I didn't really notice. I was sort of a bit stuck. I'd just had my first child. And it, as a book, it spurred me, actually, to go to a Tony Robbins seminar. And I actually went and did the UPW Firewalk. Right. Which is a mental experience. A bit weird. You, you know having an intimate moment with 13,000 other people at the NEC or wherever it is that you are. Um, but what it did do was it started a journey that A, meant that I actually got off my arse and left. And B, I started learning things. It started a developmental journey that has not stopped since. Yeah, I mean, that, what that book is good at is it is good at allowing the reader to understand why they do things and have yes. control over it. Yeah, you just come to certain conclusions. You realise, oh, God, that's why I do that. Do you yeah. know, if, if you were an alcoholic and you wanted to give up alcohol, that isn't a bad book to read. Uh, well, I've written here, what was my big takeaway? Learning about the fact and becoming consciously aware of how your belief systems affect you and also how your things like your life metaphors and the language that you speak to yourself, just mm. the words you use about yourself, to and yourself. You, and to your kids. I and, use it a lot. I yeah. just think about it with a lot of my kids. The, how your language and how words affect the, There's lots people. of that book. I mean, I, I don't think he reinvented a wheel of any kind, really. But there's lots of that book permeates into other stuff about anchors and all yeah. that kind Emotions. Of thing. You know, how often do you and I say, mm. if I'm grumpy or we're frustrated or something, what's the emotion trying to tell us? Yeah, and and, and and that's a complete lesson from Tony Robbins. What's the? Uh, uh, he, he talks a lot about emotions are just signals trying to tell you something. Yeah. And and they are. It gives you very rational calm. What's the emotion trying to tell me? The emotion is trying to tell me that that is not working. It's normally that something somewhere isn't working. Good books, these, Johnny. I'd have put both of those on my list, actually. Oh, I'm glad. Well, you're a bit screwed now, because we, you better no, find no, five no, others. Books, you? Next, so, next one is... Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk. Never read it. So that's a good one for us to Right, so about. Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk is... It's a clarion call to get off your arse and brand yourself and create a social media presence and to be relentless and non-stop with it and all action with it. 
and to get yourself out there as a brand, be that your organisational brand or your personal brand, incessantly until something happens. Right. Um, and at the time, again, we, as I think as a business, were just about to begin what has been the transformation that we've taken this business on and the journey we've taken the business on over the last couple of years when I read it. Mm. And it it was very inspiring that actually there is another way. And it that book for me crushed it. And it, in it, there are case studies of people who started blogs, started video blogs, started podcasts, where you think, hold on a minute, that really made a difference to those businesses. Yes. And we picked up with it and we haven't looked back. Our media presence has done us the world of good. I didn't yeah. realise that that was the book. That, that was that was the absolute precipitating book. And, and, and if you were a sales candidate listening to this, would, would you Definitely do that? Definitely recommend that to a salesperson. From a personal branding perspective, and a if you were total no of a software company, would you listen to that? Uh, yeah. How many it's people do you reckon have listened to it? I mean, what, never who, who've it. gone out and bought Crush It by Gary yeah. Vaynerchuk? Not that many, but it's a great... It, it's As a book, you don't look at it and it's nowhere near... You, there's not as many learnings in it as there are in, for example, Seven Habits. Or, you know, Awaken the Giant Within is a learning a page. Yes. You know, it's, eight, it's a seven, eight hundred page book. God bless him, he brain dumped on us, mm. did Tony Robbins. And if you've ever read Unlimited Power, he brain dumps in there and it's much more I technical. have read that, yeah. Um, but Crush It is a clarion call and it led me to a lot of other learning that actually was great both personally and outside of work. It made me a better photographer, a better videographer. Um, it, it got me thinking about other things and the thing that it led me to a lot is it mentions a particular article and if, you, if, people, if you're listening and you've never read this, it really is an incredibly important, probably one of the most important pieces of content ever put on the internet, ever which is an article by a guy called Kevin Kelly called A Thousand True Fans. Mm. And Gary Vaynerchuk alludes to it a lot in in that particular book where he basically, Kevin Kelly wrote this academic piece saying, actually any small business only really needs a thousand true fans to earn a living. Um, And if you have a thousand true fans that follow your social media presence, your blog, your vlog, your LinkedIn stream, and if there's a thousand of them that actually really are fans and theoretically you charge each one hundred pounds each year, you're earning a hundred whatever that is, hundred thousand pounds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Good maths. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah and, yeah, and he talks a lot about that thousand true fans and the value of that, and that got me really thinking at the time. And in many respects, I think that was very much at the forefront of the point at which I started coming to you and saying, "Listen, I think we might need to try doing some new stuff." And uh, let, let's try this so that that was an exciting book got me really thinking about personal branding and actually because thinking about it today has got me rethinking about thinking about personal branding cool so the next book michael is the four hour work week by tim ferris now i reckon you're not going to be up for this one well do you know it's funny i've got it on my shelf never read it really yeah I, and i keep looking it's at a bit it dated now well i keep looking at it and and i've never read it because like a lot of things, you know, people tell you about stuff from a book and you go, yeah, it doesn't appeal to me. And there's you tell me about it. And the way that you've described it, I thought that doesn't sound very good. The other guy that that, that absolutely lives by it is very a guy called... Very uh, successful, Andrew Mason. Yes. 
No, he's a really successful guy and a very Incredibly nice man. successful millionaire. Yeah, yeah, really nice guy. Can't knock And he him. lived, ate and breathed for I used to go on a golf tour week. with him. And, you know, you just sort of talk, talk about stuff after a while, don't you? And, and he was talking about it. And I remember listening to, to him talk about it. Like I say, top guy, you can't knock him. And, and I thought, that just didn't appeal to me. The thing about the four-hour work week is the, the central premise of it was that we all had to escape the nine-to-five and join what Tim Ferriss at the time referred to as the new rich. Yes. Notably people, and his point of the book is that we spend our lives working our asses off to get to retirement when we're too old to enjoy life, at which point we're screwed, knackered, burnt out. Just taking notes, I'm actually on aeroplane mode for those people watching. (laughs) At which point we're screwed, knackered, burnt out, and you're done. And what he's saying is, why not bin your nine-to-five job, create lots of little mini-businesses, that all yield £300 each month, have 10 of them, all yielding £300 each a month, and then uh, bin it and go to Argentina and learn to do salsa dancing and have lots of mini retirements. Now, actually, I think that as a premise is utter bullshit, and I call total bullshit on it. But what a lot of the book talks about and where the book really gets you, and I think why I've chosen it, is if you look at a lot of what we're doing as a business now and a lot of the transformation of our business, mm. a lot of that is born of my thinking from 4-Hour Workweek. How can we get more? How can we hack more? I mean, I've never read the book right, but I think 4-Hour uh, Workweek is about leverage. Yes. Uh, and I think that about leveraging is a as common sense correct. kind of thing. And I think it allows you to see the common sense. Correct. So if you look at, for example, some of the resource that we have working in the business the idea to do that or the inspiration to do that came from 4-Hour Workweek. If you look at some of the automation stuff we've done in the business, that's all ideas born of 4-Hour Workweek. So really. I don't agree with that, really. And I know what you're talking about. I think Influenced that, by. I don't think it is. I think we'd have... In the co- same way that Oasis are influenced that, by the Beatles. We'd have come to that uh, conclusion anyway. I think Personally. so, maybe. I think it just sort of states the obvious a little bit from what people have said to me. Yes. About just hacking time, hacking productivity where you can so you know does the whole concept of escaping to argentina to learn to salsa dance whilst i've got 10 protein powder businesses running in the background so that i don't have to work anymore it's a lovely thought is it practical no come on tim i don't doubt for a minute you're not work there's let's get it right tim ferris is working 70 hours a week oh inevitably yeah Inevitably. But you put it on your list, that's fair enough. But it, so it was an extremely one, influential book in my career. Uh, you know, just a little point, you know, he makes, he talk, one of the chapters in the book, he talks about going on an information diet and eliminating interruptions. He was talking about that 10, 15. Yes, to his credit, he was one of the first people to talk he about that. He was at that. the cutting edge of that, that we were all completely overloaded. And, uh, you know, that was very powerful for me. What of, I don't think I've listened to radio news for 10 years. I don't think I've watched TV news for 10 years. Yeah, I read The Economist on a Saturday. That's it. I get all my news in it. That has helped me a lot in life, actually. And then my final one, Pricey. How to Master the Art of Selling by Tom Tom Hopkins. Hopkins. (laughs) Yeah, so it was the first sales book I ever read. A good book, that, you know. We we used to make the young kids that joined us read it. Never. None of them ever read it, though. Oh, I disagree with that. A few did, I thought. I remember speaking to Tom Burroughs about it. He loved it. Did he? Yeah, he did, yeah. If he's listening to the I bet, show, I Tom. bet he's got a nice little career as a salesman now, Tom. I've not looked at his profile he's for a while. He's a lovely lad. Yeah, really, really nice kid, I thought. Badly managed down in London by that other geezer. 
but whatever, you know, I, I think it's a, a, and that book for those listening is right. I've got my first job as a salesperson. Where do I start? I have no idea what to do because I've just left university. God, what books should I pick up? That's a good start. I mean, this is, it, it, it hasn't stood the test of time. No, well, Tom Hopkins will look like he's off Dallas, I would have thought, by the yes. time it was published. On the front cover, he looks like he's on the original on season of Dallas. Yeah. Uh, but what it does do the is it... sentiment hasn't changed. No, and it introduces you as a as a young salesperson to the craft. Mm. And, he, and he's telling you, look, it's more than just pitching up and being cute. Yes. This is a craft... And if you work hard at the craft and work hard on yourself and work hard at the game, you might actually just be all right. And if you learn your scripts and practice handling the objections that you get every day, and if you realise that you're getting the same objection every day and you work out a way of overcoming it and then practice that until you're absolutely certain and confident, you'll probably be all right. And do you know what? They were pretty cool lessons to learn at 23, 24. I completely agree. They made a big difference, massive difference to me. Mm. And understanding the difference between a tie-down and a close, they were big learnings for me. Well, you know, it's funny, they're the basics that so many people now don't do. That so many people now decry. Yes, I agree with that. They're they're too good Uh, for those basics. A tie-down, how how gauche. Really? What? So, it's a good idea, isn't it, Mr Customer? It's crazy. You know, I I was going to write a LinkedIn post about this, actually. But I think the old values are making a comeback. I, well, it's I, interesting, isn't it? On LinkedIn, a lot of the sales trainers that are sales personalities in social media that are catching traction. Benjamin Denner here, if we've had as a guest on Book Club, he has got a lot of traction on Book Club because he is, I guess, like he's a, the world's most hated sales trainer. He's like a right-wing militant sales trainer, isn't he? Yes. Basically yes. telling everybody to start closing, asking tough questions and handling objections. Yeah, um, But he's gaining more traction, I would say, than any other social media-driven sales trainer well, because people guy? are realising... Tony Hughes very similar, yes, I think. because people are realising he doesn't. he's not talking shit. Yeah, absolutely. He's actually telling the truth, which is, listen, there are some basics here of asking an open and a closed... You know, Tom Hopkins taught me the difference between a closed and an open question. Completely agree. Uh, the difference between asking for a... Ask, uh, uh, the difference between tying a customer down to a time for the next conversation. Oh, alternate close. I mean, you know, let's get right. How many times when somebody's selling to you, do they offer you an alternate close? Ah, oh, never. Never, because they, it's, in inverted commas, you know, out last, of fashion. The last person did that when I bought my wife's car. We're in the BMW showroom, and I, and, and I was uh, really smiling about it. And it's just a young, you know, just, that's unfair. It was a young guy, maybe, I don't know, early 20s, something like that. That had he, listened to his sales trainer. Yeah, and, and they did it in, like, this grey colour, sort of smart-looking grey colour, or white. And he turned to me, looked at me in the eye, turned to my wife. Big smile on his face. Big smile on his face. He went, which do you prefer, the white or the grey one? I just thought, that's beautiful. Good for him. Because he, he sold he the knew. car, though. Exactly. And he knew, <laughs> he thought, she's the decision-maker on that. And that's another thing with Hopkins, isn't it? Yes, that he'd learned, he'd worked out who's going to make the decision on the colour. He knew you were spending the money. But Correct. That, but that, that Mrs P was actually making a decision on the colour. So I couldn't care on the colour. No, Why you need a car for Mrs P. Who cares? But that's a good choice then. So your five books are? So my five, So if you said to me five books that have really shaped my career, I would say number one, Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. Number two, Awaken the Giant Within. 
Number three, crush it, Gary Vaynerchuk. Number four, four-hour work week, Tim Ferriss. And number five, how to master the art of selling by Tom Hopkins. So I'm going to say, Johnny, crush it, not Reddit. So I've got to turn it into a top four to rank. <laughs> okay. So it's not fair for me to... You to... can't put it at number one, can you? I can't put it at number one or five, can I? No. Because I've no idea. No. For me, I think I'd put Tom Hopkins as one out of your choice. Okay. I'd put Covey as two. Yeah, seven habits. Robbins as three. Right. I mean, I'm just going to put four-hour work week as fifth, even though I've not even read Crush It, because I don't think it should have made you top five. Oof. Very influential book, four-hour work week, for me. It was for you, yes. But... The, I don't, the, I, if you said to me, talking to our audience, is it going to make... If you're a sales guy and you're driving along in your car right now, thinking, oh, I just need some leverage here to make myself more successful. Is four-hour work really going to change your life? It's a bit data because it doesn't take the tech into account. It needs a rewrite. Some of the tech's still pretty leading edge. You know, he was using Evernote before Evernote was an idea. Um, but pff, what it will get you thinking about is finding, you know, you and I talk a lot about there are th certain things we've done over the last few years that we've done inside the business that we often refer to as high leverage items. Yes, yes, or I do agree high with leverage that. I do activity. agree with that. You know, sometimes, for example, a lot of video stuff. High a leverage. lot of the video stuff where you stood in the studio all morning recording multiple videos for something, thinking, "What on earth am I doing here?" And actually, it's extremely high leverage time. Yes, I do agree with that. And what four hour work week does get you thinking about is concentrating on your highest leverage highest leverage time and being aware of low leverage time and that in and of itself as a learning from that book has been incredibly influential on what the shape of this business looks like now i think so uh, it definitely makes the five for me fair enough well thanks for that jonathan next week we'll be doing mine i can't wait You've taken so, two of mine as well. Uh, and then, Lily, please tell us the name of the book that we will be covering in two weeks' time. It's called, uh, not Inked, because that's Jeb Blunt's book. What's it called, Pricey? A uh, Mindful Sales. A Mindful Sales. I've read a lot of it. I've read two-thirds of it. I can't remember without looking. I'm not on the network. It's A Mind for Sales by Mark Hunter. So can, I, can people actually buy A Mind for Sales by Mark Hunter now? I don't quite think it's out in the shops, is it? We're on a pre-release PDF version, but by the time we record in two weeks' time, I would imagine it will be out, and by the time Mark is on the show, it will definitely be out. And it's effectively a book about the sales mindset, isn't it? Yes, and the, it is, yeah. the, the yeah, winning yeah. sales mindset. So I'm actually and, and really how looking to forward to that. your winning sales mindset. Right, I'm it's looking forward to really that. It's a really good book, really good. Have you enjoyed that one a bit more? Two-thirds in, I'd say it's excellent, yeah. Right, and you're enjoying doing it on the iPad as well, aren't you? With the, Using with, Apple Pencil, yeah. With your Apple Pencil, very high-tech of you. Right, well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to this slightly different show and analysis of my top five books. Next week, we're going to talk about Mike's top five books. Yes. Janet and John. Ah. <laughs> Harry McClary from Donaldson's Dairy. All good. Right, see you next week. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>